We are as we have been in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to start today. Uh, from the website of an organization called Open Doors, I read a story about a house church leader by the name of Tao in the mostly Buddhist country of Laos in, in, Laos in, in Asia. And there, a Christian family was holding a funeral for a family member when the village chief and the elders learned that there was a Christian ceremony going on in their community, and they began beating the Christian believers at the funeral, including Tao. And they were shouting, Christianity has no meaning, and Christians are useless. You have no value even when you die. And after that incident, Tao faced a series of attacks. His rice barn was burned. The tractor he used to plow his rice was destroyed. His house was pierced through the roof. And Tao reported the crimes to the village chief, but his appeals were ignored. A day after reporting the incidents, his wife, Manalei was also attacked while holding their baby. A man hit her in the head twice while an onlooker shouted, Beat her! Hit her! It would be good if she were to die! Christians are not the only persecuted group in our very fallen planet, but they are certainly one of them. In Nigeria, in northern Korea, in Afghanistan, Libya, Iran, Somalia, even China, to name a few places, these are prominent hot spots for persecution. When did all of this start? And you know the answer to that. It started from the very beginning. Today, we get to our final theme from the book of Acts. I'm calling the, uh, the sermon or the sermons, the blood of the martyrs. Uh, but the subject is persecution. There is much to cover. The opposition to the church begins in chapter 4 of the book of Acts after the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate by Peter and John. Had Peter just healed the man and left well enough alone, things would have remained calm. But no, Peter had to go ahead and preach a sermon and declare that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So Peter and John get arrested and they are jailed by the Jewish authorities. The next day they are warned and they are let go. But as the church started to grow and have greater impact, some of the apostles again were rounded up and jailed again. This time, an angel set them free from jail, and they went back to preaching despite the restraining order under which they were operating. Stating the perspective of the apostles on all this, uh, Peter said, Acts 5, verse 29, say it with me, we must obey God rather than men. He went on to mention Jesus again, and the Jewish council was in the mood to kill them until they were talked out of that approach by Gamaliel. The end of this arrest is recorded for us in chapter 5, verse 40. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. Now, flogging is a very serious punishment that would have left them bloody and battered. Nevertheless, we read these next uh, two wonderful verses, verses 41 and 42. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, this, of course, is just the start. In chapter 6, Stephen starts preaching, and a mob laid hold of him and brought him to the council, where he was allowed a defense which lasted 
over 50 verses. But finally, at the end of that chapter, verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. Stephen then becomes the first Christian martyr in the history of the church. Now, what an honor that would be. And in chapter 8, verse 1, on that day a great persecution arose against the church. The leader of that persecution was whom? This character that we know of as Saul of Tarsus. Uh, verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And as we have seen one and a half chapters later, <coughs> Saul himself goes from predator to prey as he ends up on the receiving end of Jewish persecution. So note, the initial persecution of the church was done by Jewish leaders who largely saw the Christians as being Jehovah's false witnesses and felt it their duty to stamp out this new cult. The next wave of persecution again by the Jews started up in chapter 12, verse 1. Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So the apostle James would be the second martyr in the history of the church. Would Peter be killed as well? At this point, you would think he probably would, but no. He was arrested, but again, an angel came to deliver him out of jail as the church prayed on his behalf. Why does James die and Peter gets to live many more years? God knows. <laughs> That's all. God knows. Some are appointed by our Lord to martyrdom. Some are not. Although eventually we believe Peter was put to death for his faith under Nero, indeed crucified upside down is the tradition of the church. As for Saul, known better as Paul, when he was first converted, God promised that he would many times be rescued from Jewish and Gentile persecutors. So the rest of the persecution we read about in Acts is actually directed at Paul and at those who labored in the ministry with him. Most everywhere he goes, he experiences strong opposition, even threats against his life. Now, rather than read it from Acts, we'll simply quote from 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Our country has seen in the last year an extraordinary amount of mob violence. For Paul, <laughs> an angry mob was just another day at the office. Here's a story from Acts 21. Paul is in Jerusalem when some folks stir up a crowd against him on the outrageous charge that he had tried to sneak a Gentile into the temple, an offense they saw as worthy of death. Imagine that. <laughs> they were about to kill him when he was rescued by a Roman commander. But even though it says the Roman soldiers, even though the commander had called for him, the Roman soldiers had to carry him to him to keep him from being killed by the mob. Now, the great thing about this is that Paul was then able to share his testimony with the Roman commander and everybody that was within earshot. 
For us, that's the gift of Acts chapter 22. But Paul did not get as far as Stephen. He only got to 21 verses. At verse 21, he mentions his calling from God to preach the good news of Jesus to Gentiles, which was not well received. Verse 22, they listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging. Well, that's an interesting tactic, examined by scourging, uh, so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. So, the guy who orders him to be beaten, he's the reasonable one in this story, okay? The Jewish mob had set the bar that low. In chapter 23, uh, then we actually read this in verse 12. The next morning, a group of Jews got together and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. All right, enough on persecution in the book of Acts. Of course, this was just the beginning for the church of Jesus Christ. Persecution was rampant in the early centuries. Read the long history of the Christian church, and you will find the same things going on as went on in the book of Acts. <laughs> the early church suffered greatly, accused of being cannibals, of being atheists because they denied the Roman gods, of being incestuous, of being riotous. The men we now honor, men like Athanasius and John Huss and Wycliffe and Martin Luther and the Covenanters of Scotland and the Huguenots of France and the Puritan of England, Puritans of England, all of these suffered at the hands of the wicked. The leaders of great revivals in civilized places like England and America, George Whitfield, John Wesley and others, they were mocked and they were stoned and they were hated. In our own day, largely ignored by the popular press, we see Christians routinely killed for their faith in places like Nigeria and in North Korea. In much of the Arab and Muslim world, we see believers in Jesus ostracized and pillaged and oppressed, tortured and killed for being lovers of our Christ. In the secular world, we in the secular West experience some of the softer forms of persecution, although increasingly we too will forfeit opportunities and reputation and financial gain as our values become more and more scorned and opposed. It is advisable, brothers and sisters, to count the costs before you sign up for the Jesus team. Now, Jesus never pretended it would be any other way. He said over and again that this would be our lot, John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So we see the reality and the prevalence of persecution in the book of Acts. We see it beyond the book of Acts. I think it's helpful next to consider the why. The reason for the persecution. It's not obvious at per first. I mean, uh, 
I was thinking of this in Sunday school when we were reading Paul's admonition to bear with one another and love each other and put on love and compassion and all of that. And, and you think of the religion that we, that we follow. Here are people uh, admonished to advance the value of love, even love for their enemies. Jesus taught his disciples to pay their taxes. He taught us to honor civil authorities. He taught us to busy ourselves with acts of kindness. Why oppose this crowd? <laughs> Good question. The answer is very important to understand, and I believe few things more important for believers in our day to grasp. As we look at Acts, we see the opposition arising initially from the Jewish leaders. Why? Why them? To answer that, let's go back to the Gospel of John, where we get to hear directly from them about why they felt the need to persecute Christians. After Jesus raised Lazarus, and his movement was gaining strength, the Jewish leaders gathered to evaluate the Jesus threat as they saw it. Chapter 11 there, verse 47, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council, and they said, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." And you know where this leads, of course, but, but what is going on in the heads and hearts of these persecutors? It's fear, isn't it? Fear of some personal loss. They had a nice arrangement with the Romans. They had position. They had prestige. They say that that is all going to go away if people tried to make Jesus their king. The Jesus movement, it must be stopped, or else we will lose. Fear of loss, then, is the reason behind persecution. I, I can think of no exception to this, but I can think of different forms of personal loss. Some oppose the gospel out of fear of material loss. In chapter 22 of Acts, we're in Ephesians, home of a shrine to the goddess Artemis, we read of a man named Demetrius who made silver shrines. His business was, uh, he made his living building silver shrines unto the goddess. And when people started getting converted in Ephesus, well, his business began to dry up. So he banded together everybody whose living depended on the idol industry there in Ephesus. And they went after Paul and they went after the church with a stroke of a pen as we know, a president can end jobs and livelihood for thousands of people at a time. But I want to tell you, no one has put more people out of work in the history of the human race than Jesus has. He put slave traders out of work and saloon owners and drug dealers and sex traffickers and the priest of false religion. Yes, your livelihood could be threatened by the growth of the church of Jesus Christ and the spread of the gospel. So folks like that join in a conspiracy of persecution, usually pretending to defend some noble principle when in fact it's about losing their income stream. Others are more concerned about losing control and losing power. This is often associated with money as well, but it's a bit different. The Jewish leaders saw themselves losing power if their people turned to Jesus. 
Roman governors, eventually Roman emperors, came to see Christianity as a major, if not the major, threat to their governance. And they therefore tried to destroy the church in order to protect their own power. Totalitarian governments of all sorts are hostile to the true church. From Nero to Diocletian, from Louis XIV to Bloody Mary, from Stalin to the Ayatollah, when someone demands complete loyalty to an all-powerful government, they cannot tolerate anyone in any group that has an ultimate loyalty beyond the government. What is most aggravating about Christians as well is this belief we have in an afterlife and in heavenly rewards for martyrs so that you can't control these Christians with normal threats against their lives and their fortunes. So monarchs are fearful of losing power and therefore they persecute the church. My final reason I think is the most comprehensive one and the one that explains best the persecution that we are likely to face. Many people are afraid of believers and their message. Many persecute us and try to silence our voices because they fear losing their self-regard. You can pick another term if you like. Uh, they fear losing their personal sense of nobility, their self-righteousness. They fear the accusations of their own conscience. Hey, gang, we all want to feel good about ourselves. And Jesus and his followers often have the opposite effect. The messengers of Jesus come in saying, you know, your idolatry is wrong. Your, your values are perverse. Your traditions anger the God in heaven, and you need a Savior from your sin. This is not always well received. Jesus got nailed to a cross. John the Baptist was beheaded. Stephen was stoned. James was, was stabbed and killed with a sword. The goal of the persecutors, shut them up. They kill because they don't like what we say. Sometimes they don't like how we live because of what it reveals by comparison. The darkness hates the light because light shows you things as they really are. The more we shine the light, the more likely it is that we will be seen by some as the enemy. Jesus said in John 7, verse 7, The world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. That's what makes people mad. When your life embarrasses them or when you dare to call evil, evil, we don't like the one who makes us look bad or feel bad. Curiously, righteous persons have that effect on us. This has gone on since the first person in Scripture who is identified as a righteous man. That would be the second son of Eve, whose name was Abel, the younger brother of Cain. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Cain murdered Abel because Abel made him look bad and thus feel bad. His self-righteousness was stripped away. 
So why? Why do unbelieving people feel like this towards Christians? Evil hates the light. Let me back up and just note a little qualifier. Sometimes we bring we bring things on ourselves by our ill behavior. That sometimes happens. But also evil hates the light. And what are we? Jesus called his followers. What did he call us? The light of the world. That's what he said. So the man walking in darkness may hate you because of that. Your actions expose his actions, your words his words, your beliefs his beliefs, your values his values. The sinner must criticize righteousness lest righteousness criticize him. I want to say that again. The sinner must criticize righteousness lest righteousness criticize the sinner. So let's talk about this thing we call cancel culture. It's one of a dozen words that we never heard of five years ago or even two years ago. More than any time in my life, Americans are trying to shut down the voices we don't like. We, we won't tolerate dissent at our colleges, in our media, in our workplaces. When the New York Times editorial page printed an, uh, an op-ed by the Republican car, a senator from Arkansas, Tom Cotton, arguing that federal troops should be used to squelch the protest riots in the urban centers in spring and summer. The editorial page editor was fired by the New York Times for even allowing an alleged right-wing opinion in their newspaper. This kind of thing is happening at an extraordinary rate. Why? <laughs> Challenge brings out my insecurities. It may make me question my stance. It makes me less sure of my personal nobility, my personal superiority. It's not enough. It's not enough that men have the right to marry other men nowadays. Now we must quiet anyone who will not celebrate such a union. If you don't celebrate it, then maybe you think it's wrong, and that gives fuel to what little conscience may still remain. Self-delusion is disturbed. My self-delusion is disturbed by your truth. On January 19, Focus on the Family sent out a tweet about the president's appointment of Rachel Levine as the Assistant Secretary of Health for our national government. And in the tweet, Focus on the Family referred to Rachel as being a transgendered woman, that is, a male who believes that he is a woman, and for this, considered hate speech, their Twitter account was suspended. Coming to a workplace, coming to a school near you, you must pretend that men are women and vice versa. You must refer to females as he or they or Z, if so requested, or else. Or else, why do people draw these lines in the sand? It's a sad truth. Their self-delusion is disturbed by your truth, your claims. As long as folks are allowed to speak against your claims, your choices, your insecurities, 
They get stirred up. They get brought to the surface. Your conscience may get awakened, and we cannot and we will not allow you to do that. Now, as a pastor, I am a semi-public person. I can right now be seen in all points of the globe. (laughs) As a result of being a semi-public person, I I have been on the receiving end of my lifetime of a great deal of encouragement as a number of compliments and a good bit of the other stuff as well. And I've noticed how I react to criticism depending on the substance of it. When I am criticized about something that I know I did right, Honestly, I'm able to shake that off. It doesn't disturb. I listen. I listen to it, but it doesn't disturb me. However, when I'm unsure about a decision that I made, or I'm criticized about something that I know is a personal weakness or a personal flaw, well, those really disrupt my personal peace. You follow that? Women choosing to end a pregnancy rarely feel confident about that choice. Individuals opting for an alternative sexual lifestyle rarely feel themselves to be on solid moral footing. Therefore, they will tolerate no conflicting voices. And hey gang, religious people are often guilty in the same way. We're not sure we really believe what we say, and so we will not endure opposition. The issues come, the issues go, but the basic psychology of persecution remains the same. We see it in Acts. We see it in American culture today. Next time, we are going to look at the response of the early Christians to this persecution. It's fascinating. I think a great lesson for us. We're also going to look at what a sovereign God intends by allowing such persecution for His people. But today, let's close with a couple of thoughts flowing out of this last point about self-protective silencing of unwanted voices. First of all, as followers of Jesus, we are blessed to know the truth. At this point, you can say an amen. I think somebody mumbled one. We are blessed to know the truth. We are not left to rest on human opinion. We have a solid word from our God on which to stand. And when we stand on that word, let's trust it enough to allow challenges. As Americans, we should all be able to rally around this idea. Many, if not most, of the founders of our nation were Protestant believers who eventually created a historical rarity, a nation with freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Now, granted, there have been plenty of bumps and plenty of inconsistencies along the way, but that has been our ideal in a culture established by people who believed that this Bible was the very word of the living God, and we established such a land because we truly believe that biblical faith can stand its ground in a free society. And if that is how you see it, There's no reason to insist that contrary voices be shut off and shut down. Let the atheists make their case. Let the Darwinists write their books. Let the sexual progressive present their views. And we will present ours believing that sincere hearts will embrace the truth. 
This pertains to our debates with the unbelieving world and to the intramural debates that we have in our Christian family. When we defend and present our views, we do so in moderate tones without slandering our opponents and without making false and exaggerated claims. Secure Christian faith is open to challenge and will seek to profit and to bless because of it. Then finally, let us commit ourselves to living and loving and never letting go of the truth. Never let go of the truth. Lived and spoken despite what difficulties come our way because of it. Believers from the start have been threatened. They have been slandered. They have been told to shut up. But we go back to the initial response of Peter to threats. What did he say? We must obey God. Not so much you guys. Not men. Up to this point, standing for the truth in western Pennsylvania may not have cost you a great deal. But prepare yourself, commit yourself. Sometimes people in our church give me books to read, and sometimes I read them. Deb Holt just gave me one recently, as did Jim Rimmel. Uh, Those books both have an interesting connection with one another, and they both make a great deal of a line from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's 1974 essay entitled, Live Not by Lies. In fact, the book by Rod Dreher that you see there is given the title based upon Solzhenitsyn's essay. Solzhenitsyn, remember, was the the Russian author that was caught criticizing Stalin in a private letter and spent eight years in a Soviet labor camp and many more years in internal exile before being able to leave to come to the United States. Solzhenitsyn, who endured a totalitarian, atheistic government, says this, though lies may conceal everything, though lies may control everything, we should be obstinate about this one small point. Let them be in control, but without any help from us. Dreyer says in his book, the ordinary man may not be able to overturn the kingdom of lies, but he can at least say that he is not going to be its loyal subject, end quote. For us as disciples of Jesus, there is yet more. For we who know the truth, silence is not golden. It's a sickly pale yellow. We speak of Jesus. We declare His word. We stand for His truth against whatever the devil and the world brings against us simply because we fear and obey God and not man. As Martin Luther said, God help me, here I stand, I can do no other. And he wrote a nice hymn about how God is the fortress and refuge for one who does that. So our musicians will come up to lead us in that hymn as we close together in prayer. Thank you, Brother Wayne.
Our Father and our God, we uh, bow before you grateful today that we are yours, that we are linked by faith with you, and our eternity is secure. We are in your hands, and come what may, we will be forever in your hands, because no one can snatch us out of your mighty right hand. So, Father, make that truth ever more prevalent in our thinking. Make it ever more precious to us. Make it ever more central to our identity, to who we know and believe that we are. Father, we don't know exactly what tomorrow holds or next year or 10 years from now in our society. We pray, Father, that our freedoms might be maintained. But, Lord, when and where they're not, give us, Lord, the courage to stand for truth, to not participate in lies to not shrink back out of cowardice, but to endure with gladness what persecution you and your providence and wisdom send our way. So, Father, give us a resolve. Give us, Lord, a determination that when our opportunity to stand as Stephen and James and Peter and Paul all stood, as Luther stood, and so many others before us, Father, may our decision be made beforehand that we will live not by lies, but we will stand firm on the truth of your word. And Lord, may we do so, not with sadness, but with gladness, that we are yours. And if martyrdom is our appointment, our eternity will be so much sweeter. Thanks for hearing us as we pray. Thank you for forgiving our cowardice in the past. And come now by your spirit and strengthen us for the challenges of tomorrow, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.